Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. So I'm going to talk about the, uh, what Samir has called neuroaesthetics and many of us have been interested in the question of can you come up with uh, science of art? Now this seems like an oxymoron because science and art seem fundamentally antithetical enterprises. Art is about asserting individuality of every human being. Science is about discovering universal principles. In fact, C.P. Snow a long time ago talked about these two cultures. Science on the one hand, the humanities on the other, and never the twain shall meet. But in fact, I will argue, and most of you will agree, that the place where they meet is in the human brain. And art is a good place to start exploring this possibility. So the question is, is there a science of art? Well, first of all, let me tell you a, few, uh, a little bit, maybe a couple of minutes, on why I got into this. Mainly, I do behavioral neurology and study human vision and visual perception. How come I started investigating visual aesthetics? Um, in fact, I, until about 10 years ago, I had no interest in art other than, you know, I look at pretty pictures, obviously. Or when I went to a conference at, a, at a, some city, I would say, is there an exhibition at the local art gallery? Then I would go to it just to show I was very cultured and you know, that sort of thing. But I really had no great passion for it. And all that changed about, um, I don't know, about 12, 13 years ago when I took a course by an art historian, Julia Kindy, who used to be at a UCSD. And then I went back to India on a sabbatical and I didn't have a lot to do. And I kept look, going to the temples where I would be taken as a child to look at the Indian statues of gods and goddesses. And at that time, it was just religious iconography. And then when I came to, the, to England, I was taught that this is all religious iconography, not really high art. So I started thinking about this. They started haunting me day and night, these images. Not as religion, but as works of great, great works of art. And I started wondering, why would some works of art have such powerful uh, effects on the human mind? And I started looking at the history of reactions to Indian art. Um, and when the Victorians first came to India and looked at some of these sculptures, for example, this is a goddess Parvati, who's supposed to be the very epitome, uh, she's supposed to be the goddess of the cosmos, the very epitome of human uh, femininity, sensuality, grace, poise, dignity, everything that makes a woman beautiful. But the Western art historians looked at it, and they said, my God, it's hideous. Its breasts are too big, the waist is too narrow, the hips are too big. It doesn't look like a real woman. And of course, by saying this, they are completely missing the point of art, because the point of art is not to create a realistic picture of a woman. You know, you can take a $5 camera and aim it at somebody and create a realistic picture. On the contrary, the goal of art is to deliberately exaggerate, alter, deliberate hyperbole, alter, distort even, the image in some way to produce pleasing effects in the human brain. And the question is, are there any lawful aspects to this distortion? Now, the irony is the same English historians, a few centuries later, of course, Picasso comes along, and he creates these nudes, which are grotesquely distorted, two eyes on one side of the face like a flounder, and she's got a hunchback, and all of that. And, and they said, what did the historians say? They said, my God, what a genius. He's liberated us, <laughs> liberated us from the tyranny of realism. Okay? Well, that's what the Indian artist was doing, too. And then I was giving this talk at the Getty about 10 years ago, and some historian of the, um, I think he was English, at the, in the audience got up and said, well, look, when Picasso was doing it, it was quite deliberate. He was deliberately distorting it. Whereas when the Indian artist was doing how do you know maybe he just got it wrong? <laughs> well, and I said, I said, well, look, look, chap, my dear chap, you know, the Indian artist knows perfectly well what realism is. In fact, if you go back 2,500 B.C. and look at the terracottas in the Indus Valley, it's wonderfully realistic 
torso there made of terracotta. In fact, if you look at that bulging belly there, you see it's more realistic than Greek art. That's what real guys look like. <laughs> but then, very quickly, they made the transition, and they said, to hell with realism, let's create um, these things. And I'll get back to that in a minute. So the question I'm going to address is another example from Kajiraho showing the, again, completely non-realistic, but conveying the mood of amorous uh, intimacy. Uh, so are there, the question I'm going to address is, are there artistic universals? This is raised repeatedly during this meeting. And how does the brain respond to art? Now, I'm going to urge that, in fact, in spite of the staggering diversity of artistic styles, you see across cultures and across time, you get Tibetan art, you get Chinese art, you get Renaissance art, you get Greek art, you get Roman art, you get Etruscan art, of course, Indian art, and you get Dada, which is not even art. Uh, <laughs> but in spite of all this variety, uh, there are some universal underlying principles, and I'd like to argue, yes, in fact, there are. And sitting in the precincts of the temple, I just thought about it, and I came up with what I call the eight universal laws of aesthetics. And at this point, I want to, and I'll get back to these as we go along, and I'm going to tell you about each of these laws. But I want to say, when I say there are universal laws of art, this doesn't mean that there are no cultural overtones to art. Obviously, culture plays a tremendous role. Otherwise, you would not have different artistic styles. But culture and cultural influences are studied ad, ad nauseum by art historians, not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in are there universal principles that cut across cultural disciplines. And in fact, I think there are, because look, they even cut across phylogenetic lines. Why would you find a butterfly or a bird of paradise beautiful? A butterfly evolved to be beautiful to another butterfly, not to look beautiful to your brain, right? And yet you, after 600 millions of evolution, find a butterfly beautiful. And I think it's because both organisms are independently evolved, similar aesthetic laws or principles. And of course, some of these include symmetry, which I'll get to in a minute. And just to emphasize this, that art not only transcends cultural boundaries, but species boundaries, uh, notwithstanding Dr. Povinelli's very elegant presentation, um, Bowerbirds, these are diminutive little nondescript male birds which create this beautiful, incredibly elegant bower, symmetrical, about 20, 30 times as tall as the bird, decorated with similar colors here. Sometimes they put cigarette foil and berries, and that's another bower, okay? So if you took this and put it in a New York Manhattan art gallery on, on Fifth Avenue and didn't tell somebody it was a bird brain that produced it, it might, it might fetch a fairly handsome sum of money. And are, by the way, you may say, well, it's not really creating it. It doesn't have aesthetic appeal. Well, guess what? If you remove one berry and throw it away, the bird will come back, take the berry, and put it back. Okay? So it's extremely, you can see the OCD traits here. Extremely <laughs> fastidious about it. And every bower is different. The same species, different males produce. It's sort of like a Freudian compensation for their drab appearance. They produce these beautiful bachelor pads, and every bird is slightly different, and this leads to, of course, sexual selection for the most beautiful bower. Okay, so that's another example of a bower where the guy has chosen all these little pebbles of similar color and little blue pebbles in there, and again, a bower that looks different. Now, this doesn't mean culture doesn't play a role. Obviously, it does, but it's not something that interests me, right? If it didn't play a role, you can't put that and get $300 million in an art gallery in New York. I'm not making this up. This is Damien Hirst. He has, a, he has a shark pickled in formaldehyde, and he sells it for $300 million. This is why I avoid the word art. I've started to avoid the word art because of all the cultural connotations. It's a loaded word determined by the auctioneer's hammer, 
be determined by fads and fashions and culture. I prefer the word visual aesthetics, and I think you can get to the universal principles underlying aesthetics, but not visual art, not yet. Okay? Another example, this sold for $500 million. It's a skull decorated with little beads and uh, some diamonds that are thrown in. Okay, I don't know why that would sell for $500 million. That's a Khajuraho Indian sculpture from the 12th century showing a beautiful, voluptuous, celestial nymph, and that's sold only for 200000 by the way. <laughs> okay, let's go back to the laws of art. Uh, I call them laws of art, but they should be, strike that out with a red pen and say laws of aesthetics. Forget about art, okay? Let me give you a good example of this. I'm going to take you, with, to, take you through these step by step and I'll give you very simple examples. Uh, in fact, almost too simple. One is grouping or binding. Uh, but to understand these principles, let me just briefly say, you have to understand that many people here are not specialists, so I'll briefly mention the fact that when people think of visual perception, you think there's a picture in the eyeball on the retina, and the picture is transmitted along the optic nerve and displayed on a screen in the brain called the visual cortex. But of course, that's rubbish, because if you have a screen there, then you need another little guy there. And of course, that doesn't solve the problem, because then you need another little guy in his head. And it goes on and on and on. So you, you have to think in terms of, that, that shows you a cartoon diagram. There is no screen in the brain with people watching it. So you have to think in terms of symbolic descriptions or transforms. And in fact, well, I can show you examples to illustrate this, but I'm going to skip that. The same, that cube can be either seen as that or that. And it kind of flips mentally, even though I'm not doing anything to the stimulus. Which means every act of perception involves judgment by the observer. It involves making a choice, making a decision, using ambiguous inputs. And therefore, we have evolved, another example there, dozens, in fact, 30 visual areas in the human brain concerned exclusively or primarily with visual processing. So if, if it were the case that you're just sending a picture to the brain and then looking at the picture, you don't need 30 areas. The reason you need 30 areas is it turns out vision is an extraordinarily complex and sophisticated process. So what I'd like to submit is, and this is good news for artists, because if vision involved just transmitting an image and displaying it on a screen, you couldn't have art. If it's just as a guy watching the screen, there's no art. The reason art works is because there are so many areas doing different specialized, processing different aspects of the visual image and talking to each other. So what the artist is doing is creating images. So let's get rid of realism, right? What he's doing is distorting and creating images which more optimally titillate these visual areas in the brain than you could with a realistic image. So that's what the artist is doing. He's creating hyper-stimuli. And the question is, how do you distort the image? You can't take an image and to stimulate these areas more effectively and create a limbic jolt, you can't arbitrarily, randomly distort them and call it, call it art. Although here in La Jolla, people do that. Okay? <laughs> so the question is, how do you create lawful distortions? Right? So what I'm going to do is, again, tell you about some elementary principles. The first one, simple one, is grouping. And you all have the experience of seeing this set of splotches. How many of you have seen this before? Raise your hand. Well, those who have not, you see a bunch of splotches and as you watch, I'm telling you, there's a dog here. And slowly you start, there's a Dalmatian dog. These are the legs. These are the front legs, paws. And then that's the ear. And it's sniffing the ground. That's the collar. How many of you see it now? And notice, you can actually sense your visual system groping for a solution as though it's solving a problem. And finally, when it clicks, you go, aha. Now, this is a well-known illusion. What people have not commented on adequately is you get a reward jolt when you finally see the image. So it's almost like problem solving and an internal reward when you, when you solve the visual problem of finding this Dalmatian dog. Now, let's take another example of grouping in the more, in our context, 
you go to Nordstrom's and you go and buy a, a, a skirt or a scarf or a, or a jacket or a tie, and the salesman will say, oh, when you have the tie, you should have some blue flex in it if you're wearing a blue jacket, because it'll pick it up and it'll look prettier. Now, why the hell does he say that? Is this just arbitrary? Is this just hype marketing? What is it? Well, I'm going to argue, no, it's telling you something very deep about aesthetics, and it's really tapping into brain circuitry involved in detecting camouflage, believe it or not. So imagine one of your ancestor primates scurrying up on the treetops, seeing something, a leopard with a bunch of splotches, and it's completely camouflaged. As soon as the leopard starts moving, you see all the splotches moving in one direction, and the brain instantly says, what is the likelihood they're all moving together in the same direction by chance? <laughs> no, they're all one object. Let me glue them together, and oh, wow, it's a leopard. Let me get out of here. Okay. Now, that jolt, wow jolt, is absolutely critical. So little, and same thing, you can have color. You've, you've seen through green foliage, and you see some yellow splotches, and you say, what the hell is that? And the brain says, it can't be a coincidence that all these yellow splotches, you link them together, and you say, my God, it's a lion, let me get out of here. Let me show you some examples of this. So that's an example of movement, the leopard I was telling you about, but in this case, it's not a leopard. What do you see? Okay, face. So, and then you get an aesthetic jewel. Now, that's an example of yellow splotches seen behind green foliage. And you see, th that's a bird. And the brain is groping for a solution. When it clicks, it gets an aha aesthetic jolt. And so little does this salesman in Nordstrom's realize, when he's picking a tie with similar blue specks to your coat, he's tapping into the same neural circuitry that evolved in your brains to detect lions. Okay? So that's the same circuitry he's tapping into. Now, let's go on a little bit. Now, for any one of these laws, so, okay, so speaking of... Uh, the aha experience, what I'd like to suggest is when you're looking at complex visual images of the kind some artists produce to create aesthetic appeal, what happens is the old view of vision comes from MIT, is there's a module here in the visual cortex, and then there's another module, another module, another module, and then, and then finally you say, wow, it's an object, it's a lion, right? So it's a serial hierarchical bucket brigade model of vision, which Pat and I have criticized in the old days in Terry Sanofsky. In fact, real vision does not proceed in this manner, at every stage in the hierarchy of processing, first of all, there's a lot of parallel processing, but every stage in the hierarchy, a partial solution to the visual problem is sent back to the earlier stage to bias subsequent processing. And this seems to happen at every stage. So you get little ahas at every stage in processing. And what I'm going to claim later is that each stage when you achieve a partial solution, a mini aha is generated when a jolt is sent to the limbic structures, especially the amygdala, and we know the amygdala sends connections all the way back to every stage almost in visual processing. That's not a hypothesis, that's known anatomically. Okay? And I think the role of these pathways in visual art and aesthetics has not been adequately appreciated. Okay, so let's move on. Grouping is also used by Renaissance artists and indeed by most schools of art. Here's an example where this azure of the clothes mimics the azure of the sky. You get the same beige color repeating. Obviously, I don't think this is because he had a limited palette of colors. It's because he's exploiting this desire of the visual system to group similar colors. In this case, of course, it backfires because normally grouping is for fragments of the same object. But that rule is built in so you can take advantage of it and say, let's create it. Even though it's different objects, it doesn't matter. The rule is pleasing to the eye. And I can show you other examples of that, like that one from uh, Duchamp. Sorry, Matisse. Sorry, Duchamp, whatever. Um, Okay, well, anyhow, um, another example of a law, a simple law, is symmetry. 
We alluded to this earlier. Many speakers alluded to this. Why is symmetry appealing? And I think it's universal. I think human animals have this uh, preference for symmetry. And one theory is something to do with detecting parasites, but we won't go there. The reason, I think, is in nature, most biological objects are symmetrical. It's either prey or predator or mate. So there's an early alert system saying, something symmetrical here, look at it, it's interesting, and it grabs your attention. Maybe it's a potential prey, potential mate, maybe it's a predator, then get out of it, so it's arousing. And that's what you're tapping into whether you're looking at a butterfly or something like a human face, uh, or even the immortal monument to love that we call the Taj Mahal. Now, of course, great monuments, you know, there's no point in having them symmetrical, but they're again tapping into the same neural machinery that evolved to detect people, to detect animals and detect prey and predator. The great king is tapping into that same principle and creating this great symmetrical architecture. Okay, then, I would, then I'd like to tell you about another principle, which is called peak shift. It comes from animal behavior. One of the things I want to emphasize is in, in coming up with these principles of visual aesthetics, you need to do three things, three corners of a triangle. And that is first, you need to, so what I call it is what, how, and why. Okay? By what I mean, what is the law? Give a clear formulation of the particular principle you're talking about, like grouping, or symmetry, or peak shift. And then you say, why? Why is this useful? Why is it use, useful to group things? And I told you to defeat camouflage. Why is it used to detect symmetry? And I said it's to do with living things. That can't be right. <laughs> okay. So... And then you need to know how, what the neural circuitry is. So let's take another example of what I call peak shift. You teach an animal to discriminate a square and a rectangle. And the animal, you teach a rectangle, is, it is a rat. The rectangle square means no food. Rectangle means piece of cheese. It soon learns to distinguish a rectangle from a square. Now you then present to the rat something he's never seen before, a longer, skinnier rectangle. And the rat prefers number three to number two. And you say, well, that's stupid. Why would it actually prefer uh, the third rectangle to the second rectangle? Because it was originally shown that. The answer is it's not really stupid because what the rat is learning is a rule, rectangularity. Okay? And this is so the more rectangular, the better. So it says, wow, what a sexy rectangle. And it goes to that. Okay? So this is called a peak shift. And you say, what's it got to do with art? Well, if you do this in, in human caricature, you do the same thing. If I say create a caricature of Nixon... You take Nixon, his big nose, shaggy eyebrows, subtract it from the average male face, and you get what's characteristic of Nixon, and you amplify it, and you get a peak shift version of Nixon, and you say, my God, it looks even more like Nixon than Nixon himself. <laughs> now, that's caricature if you overdo it, but you can do the same thing with great portraiture, which is what Rembrandt did. By the way, I want to pause here for a second and tell you a little bit about the neuroscientific aspects of this. Many people have gone and recorded from the brains of primates, including brain imaging in humans, you put an electrode in MT, middle temporal area, which is sensitive to direction of motion, and then say, I'm going to show you the Caldermobile, which is a great work of kinetic art. And the cell in MT starts firing. And he said, my God, I've discovered the basis of kinetic art. Now, that's complete bullshit, because that cell will fire with any movement. It's nothing to do with an artistic ability. A swarm of bees will set the cell firing. So what you have to show is, again, if you go to face cells in, in, uh, in, in uh, the fusiform gyrus, That'll, if you show a Rembrandt, it'll fire, and you say, my God, I've discovered the basis of portraiture. But if you show it any damn face, it'll fire, right? So what you have to show is what's special about a Rembrandt face that makes it different from a regular photograph. In other words, what I think is doing is doing peak shifts. So what I'm predicting is, if you show caricatures of an alpha male primate to the cell, that'll be more effective than the original prototype. 
And this has actually been we proposed this 10 years ago. It's actually been confirmed experimentally by a couple of different groups working at Harvard. Okay. Now you say, what's this got to do with? Okay, that's caricature, but the same principle applies to Indian art or any art for that matter. So that looks maybe a little bit distorted. But what you do is you take the average woman subtracted from, uh, sorry, you take a beautiful woman, uh, you take a woman and subtract the male from the female, and you say what's woman like about her, and then you exaggerate it, and of course you're going to get big breasts, big hips, and all of that. And also posture, it's not just big breasts and hips. The posture that a female can adopt, there are certain postures that I can't do as a male even if I try. Okay? <laughs> it's to do with the angle between the femoral shaft and the, and the neck and, and the pelvis and all of that. And the woman can do this effortlessly. So you go into posture space and you amplify it and you get this beautiful, elegant, uh, triple flexion poise. Another example of that. Another example. Okay, so I'm going to skip that. I was going to tell you about Picasso cells and how you can get into that. Maybe you can talk about that later tomorrow. Now you say, well, that's fine about... Uh, uh, about uh, facial portraiture and caricature and all of that. What about abstract art? Right? What about Henry Moore, for example? Or even a Picasso, for that matter. Well, here, you go to ethology. So that's a seagull with a big beak, yellow beak with a red spot. And the, when the mother, when the chick hatches from the egg, it starts pecking at that red spot, and the mother then regurgitates the food, half-digested food, into the gaping mouth of the chick. The chick swallows it, and it's happy. So the question Timbergen asked is, how does the chick know its mother? And he said, what he found was, you don't need a mother. You take a, you pluck the beak off, presumably from a dead seagull, right? And then you, you wave it in front of the chick, and the chick still goes for the beak. And you say, well, that's stupid. Why is the chick pecking, begging for food from a disembodied beak waved about by the scientist? Well, the answer is not stupid, because the visual system is trying to do as little work as possible for the job on hand. And here it's saying, what is the likelihood of my seeing a disembodied beak in nature? It's almost certainly attached to my mother. So let me just simplify all the computation and just go for that long thing with the red spot, because I'm unlikely to ever encounter a mutant pig with a beak in nature. <laughs> now, the amazing thing Timbergen found, though, was you don't need a beak. You can take a stick and you put three red stripes. The chick fetishizes it. It prefers this to the beak. It goes berserk. And it actually prefers it to the mother and goes, starts pecking at that. And you say, well, that's kind of stupid. Why does it do that? Well, this suggests that there are neurons in the tectum and other visual areas in the chick's brain that are some form prototypes or form primitives. We don't know what the coding scheme is in vision in these brains yet. But let's assume that it has some coding scheme, like more outline red, the better. Therefore, what you're doing is by putting three stripes, you're producing a super beak, right? So it's even more beak-like than the real beak. And the chick goes crazy, and he says, my god, what a beak. Right? <laughs> now, what's this got to do with art? So this is my punchline. What I'm going to say is that if the seagulls had an art gallery, they would hang this damn thing up on the wall. They would worship it, pay millions of dollars, and say, my god, why is it pleasing? It doesn't even look like anything like a real thing. Well, that's what all of you are doing when you're buying works of abstract art. Okay? <laughs> you're all behaving like seagull chicks. And, you know, I can give you examples, but I won't. This is nothing, nothing realistic about it, but it's tapping into some form primitives in your brain. Um, I was going to tell you about Picasso. I'm going to skip that. Let me tell you about one or two more principles. I did start about 10 minutes late. I just want to... Okay. Um, now, I talked about peak shift. Now, on the other hand, there's another principle, which is called isolation. That is, every artist knows this, and that is the art of understatement. Sometimes a little doodle by Picasso of a bull 
I'm sure many of you have seen this, or klimt, we usually think of paintings, but sometimes you drew little nudes with just an outline, which is nothing but a little outline, and, and it's wonderfully evocative and beautiful. So here, less is more in art, as the aphorism goes. So I'm not contradicting myself. On the one hand, I'm saying peak shift, exaggeration, hyperbole. On the other hand, I'm saying minimalism, understatement. So is this not a contradiction? Oops. <laughs> so is this not a contradiction? Well, often science progresses by resolving contradiction. I, I claim it's not a contradiction. Because the reason is when you see a full-color 3D picture of a nude, you've got all kinds of irrelevant information cluttering the image. This has nothing to do with their outline or form. And your brain, even though it's got 100 billion nerve cells, have a limited attentional capacity. You can have only one set of neurons active at any given time representing an object in the visual world. Given that attentional bottleneck, if you clutter the image of all sorts of irrelevant, my, my skin color is the same as a nude, my hair is the same as a nude, what's special about her is her outline, or a bull for that matter. What's special is about her outline. So what an artist, what when we learn to sketch, for example, we have to learn to focus on what's critical about the nude, namely the outline, right? And put all our attention to it and introduce peak shifts in that. And what you and I do through extensive training, the intuitive genius or artist does spontaneously. He focuses his attention on what's critical and he throws away all the irrelevant clutter. This is why a, a nude which is made of an outline is much more evocative than a Playboy pinup or a Chippendale pinup with all the 3D information and all the color. And a good example, you say, how do I know this, Rama? Well, a good example is, is this. I'm showing you three pictures. One drawn by the, by, uh, sorry, one drawn by a normal eight-year-old child. And it looks absolutely hideous. I mean, you might want to call it abstract art. To me, it looks hideous, okay? Now, now, on the other hand, you come here, you see this is a work of art by the great Renaissance art, Leonardo da Vinci. And you can see it's much more pleasing aesthetically. Everybody would agree. Now here is a work of art done by a seven-year-old autistic child who can barely talk, in fact can't talk. And this is Nadia. And many people, when, they don't when I don't tell them this, will say this is actually more pretty than this. It's more animated. It has more movement, more energy. So how can a seven-year-old retarded child, quote-unquote retarded child, produce a more beautiful drawing than Leonardo da Vinci? The answer is, again, the principle of isolation, what I was telling you about earlier, which is that in the autistic child, even though many of the modules are malfunctioning, there may be one region of the brain, this is perfectly testable, namely the right parietal, which is involved in a sense of artistic proportion. We know this from clinical neurology. And that area, you can allocate all your attentional resources spontaneously to the one remaining functional module so they can extract what's essential about the image much more effectively than you and I can and discard all the irrelevant clutter, hence the phenomenon of, of savant syndrome or idiot savant as they used to be called. Okay, uh, one, one more principle and we're done, or two more principles, and that is <laughs> the principle of visual problem solving. And that is sometimes seeing a Playboy pinup or a Chippendale pinup is much less aesthetically appealing than seeing a nude behind a shower curtain. And you say, well, that's kind of weird. After all, there's more information coming from a pinup and hitting all your visual areas in the brain than from something hidden behind a shower curtain. Here, what I'd like to submit is, that the very act of searching for meaning, searching for an image there, and saying, aha, it's an object, is pleasing to the eye. Just as when you, in regular problem solving, you're playing chess or doing a jigsaw puzzle, when you finally put it together, you say, aha, I found the object. So what I'm claiming is, at each stage in visual processing, so here is a, it's sort of 
understated, subdued, and the brain is faced with a challenge, it's actually more pleasing to the eye, just as playing chess is playing regular problem solving is pleasing to the eye. And again, harking back to what I said earlier, that what's going on in vision is, at every stage, there's a mini aha jolt. Otherwise, if you were to see a, 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 a woman or a man in a fog, you would give up the chase immediately, instead of pursuing her. So this makes the pursuit in itself reward, rewarding or reinforcing. And I'm claiming that this is going from the visual areas in the brain back to the limbic structures, and sent back saying, pursue further. Okay? And these are all testable conjectures. Now, another example there. So what I'm arguing then essentially is visual art and aesthetics is visual foreplay before the climax of object recognition. Okay? So just as foreplay can be annoying, but at the same time extremely delightful and pleasing, same thing is going on in visual art. Okay. All right. So that's, again, showing you the visual pathways. I'm going to tell you about one principle, which is abhorrence of unique visual vantage points, but I'll just skip over it briefly. That image is far less pleasing than that image. And you say, why? Because that's just as likely to be around. I mean, just in terms of probability, that's just as probable as that. Why is that hideous and why is that prettier? Because the brain has a built-in tendency to prefer generic viewpoints and doesn't like unique viewpoints. And we can go into that later in discussion. Uh, and it shows, by the way, something utterly trivial. Why are beauty spots beautiful? She's pretty in that beauty spot. We've done... But by the way, we've done quantitative studies on that and obtained what psychologists refer to as psychometric functions, which means graph, essentially. Okay? We've done that. But the bo bottom line is that looks pretty, that looks hideous. And you don't need a graph. You don't need a psychometric function to show that. Okay? That, again, looks hideous. Now, why that is so is not clear. That's actually symmetrical, so it should be prettier because I think that's a unique vantage point. But that's a generic vantage point, but also it's drawing attention to important features. If you cannot answer something as simple as why are beauty spots beautiful, and why the positioning makes such an enormous difference to its aesthetic appeal, you'll not begun to scratch the surface of the problem of what aesthetics is. I wanted to tell you about metaphor in art. A couple of speakers already alluded to it. And I think this aspect of art is art. It makes it uniquely human. And there are many layers of meaning in this work of art, which time does not permit. I can talk about this for an hour, but I won't. Um, but now I'm going to conclude by saying, here, throwing up a challenge. We've talked about all these principles of aesthetics. Have we solved the problem of aesthetics? The answer is we've made a beginning. Have we solved the problem of art? We've barely scratched the surface. The challenge is, why do we think? I'm going to show you two examples of art. One of them is absolutely hideous. It's kitsch. And the other is, is a work of art. Now, is this just arbitrary and cultural? I think that's nonsense. I think there's a genuine difference between kitsch art and the real thing, because you can graduate from kitsch, kitsch to the real thing, but you can't slide backwards. And to give you an example of this, give you an example of it, that's a great work of art. It's a Monet, as you all know. That's the zero point of art. It's Kincaid, and I don't want to offend anybody here who collects Kincaid. Okay? So now, kitsch also has some of these principles. So what's the difference? What I would argue is that kitsch goes through the appearance of deploying these principles does so ineffectively, because they haven't quite got, grasped the principles. So they ineffectively use the same principles and blindly follow them, and you end up with kitsch art. I'm, I'm sort of planning an experiment where I show lots of people non-kitsch works of art, and then subtract from the brain image kitsch works of art, and see what lights up, and you get the art center in the brain. Thank you.
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.